Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. China has more virus cases than we knew, and the stock market gets used to Bernie Sanders. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I think was a kind of last hurrah for the central bankers. It's one of the things that's kept rates so low is inflation. And so inflation, for a variety of reasons, has been a no-show. We will see a much bigger variation between mm. companies within the same sector. And what we're really looking for is the ways that affect the customer today, because this is a customer-driven revolution. Possibly, China is a form of diversification. There's very likely to be a decoupling between the United States and China. American workers' outcomes the American economy's outcomes are determined much more in Washington than they are in Beijing. Consistency is more important than volatility. So I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of these institutions to begin to diversify their income streams to get a little more consistency within their business model. Fed Chair Jay Powell made his semi-annual trek up to Capitol Hill this week. And for once, the focus wasn't just on interest rates or whether Mr. Powell and Mr. Trump were getting along these days. No, this time, members of Congress were eager to get Jay Powell's views on the state of public health, specifically the public health of Ubei province in central China, and whether the spreading coronavirus there will take down the world economy. The real question for the Fed is what is a likely effect on the U.S. economy. And I think we'll, so we'll see that, we'll begin to see it in economic data coming up fairly soon. And we don't, it, it's too uncertain to even speculate about what the, what the level of that will be and whether it will be persistent or whether it will lead to a material change in the outlook. For their thoughts on the coronavirus and what it could mean for the economy, we welcome now our contributors, Asane Beshlas, CEO of global investment firm Rock Creek. Asane founded Rock Creek after a distinguished career at the World Bank and the Carlyle Group. And Stephen Ratner, chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors. 
the private investment group that manages the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael R. Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP. So welcome, both of you. Good to have you here. So, Sonny, let me start, start with you. You've dealt a lot with China. Yes. Do we trust the numbers? Because this week, China revised upward the number of cases substantially from what we thought it was. I think as with all other cases in China, uh, just like the GDP numbers and other data that we have looked at, people who have been watching China did not necessarily believe the data that they were seeing. There was a question mark as to whether uh, the, there was a shortage of kits to test people or whether the government was actually limiting the number of kits. And of course, um, we just had the revision in terms of the kind of testing you need to make sure we knew if somebody had the virus or not. I think um, the government has known all along since, you know, the first case in December that this is a bigger problem, but they've tried to manage the news just like they do with other data. And I think it has now uh, created a major PR problem for the leader and his, uh, and his party. A major PR problem, Steve, but is also a major problem for investors, for Jay Powell, for that matter, trying to get your arms around projecting what is going to happen. You have to know where you are. If we don't trust the numbers, how do we know where we are? Well, we don't. And I think Jay Powell was appropriately candid about that. And all we can do is watch and wait and see how the data unfolds. I think there is a perception in the market. And Afsani certainly knows more about the actual facts around this. There's a perception in the market that this is not going to be a uh, life-changing, well, it's a bad expression, not going to be an earth-shaking event from an economic point of view, and that we may even be on the downward side of the curve in terms of the number of cases and so on and so forth. But is it possible the market's getting too eager to call this a V rather than a U or even an L? Well, I think there's a lot of things going on in the market, which we can talk about whenever you want, uh, not just the coronavirus as to why the market moves the way it moves. But if you go back and look at the experience around SARS, it was a V, basically, in the market. It went down, it turned around, it went back up again. And a different, completely different set of facts, but the same thing happened in March of 2009 when the market looked like it was collapsing and then suddenly it became a V. So I think there are a, a number of investors who look at this and want to be careful. They don't run for the exits just as... Uh, just as the party's uh, resuming. Is, is SARS right? The, is that the right analog? I think it's, the, it's a really important uh, analog, even though, you know, at that point, obviously, the um, size of the economy in China was much smaller. The interactions and sort of the global nature of China's exports was different. But I think um, what Steve said is really important in the sense that uh, with what's going on uh, in China, if you look at the actual numbers, markets are not down that much. Yes. Not the way we would have expected them to be. The other thing, which is very interesting, is if you look inside the numbers, technology stocks, you know, are doing well. Anything related to the Internet where people are using um, the systems to buy goods and get things delivered are doing well. Biologics and, uh, and the health sector are up like 8, 9, 10 percent, depending on which you're looking at. So within a market that is very, very stressed, in a market where people, you know, less than 10 percent of the labor in many parts of the provinces, larger provinces are coming to work, it's interesting and frankly a little surprising that the Chinese market itself has mm. not uh, been affected as much as, let's say, the total market in Indonesia or some other neighboring countries. So whether the SARS, or the, I'm sorry, the coronavirus uh, does cause a downturn or not, Jay Powell was asked about what tools he had to address a downturn, and he basically said, don't count on monetary policy, look to fiscal. The current low interest rate environment also means that it would be important for fiscal policy to help, help support the economy if it weakens. 
Putting the federal budget on a sustainable path when the economy is strong would help ensure that policymakers have the space to use fiscal policy to assist in stabilizing the economy during a downturn. A more sustainable federal budget could also support the economy's growth over the long term. So, Steve, it strikes me we got a budget proposal out of the Trump administration this week, uh, and it certainly had stimulus in it. We have uh, deficits going up to $30 trillion eventually. I'm not sure that Mr. Powell would call that sustainable. No, I think what the chairman was saying in, Fe- in Fed speak was <laughs> that he was not happy with the Trump uh, uh, budget, not so much their proposals as their policies. In other words, it's a little bit like watch what he does, not what he says. They put out a budget document that does theoretically provide for balance, and I think it's 2035 or something like that. But everything they've done since they came into office was to massive tax cuts, massive spending, increase in concert with the Democrats, in fairness. And so basically you've had more than a doubling in the budget deficit from less than half a a trillion to a trillion uh, just because of that. So I think what Powell is saying is um, there is not much space on the monetary side. We've talked about this before. We can talk about it again. But he's also saying at the moment there isn't necessarily that we haven't made enough space on the fiscal side either because a trillion dollar deficit is big enough by itself. But, Sonny, the United States is not alone in this regard. I mean, austerity has gone by the wayside. We had the Chancellor of Exchequer step down this week in the U.K. The pound went up because they think, well, maybe Boris Johnson can spend more money. Exactly. It seems like every world leader is taking a page out of the Chinese leaders. (laughs) And um, it started in China, where deficit spending was not a problem. The U.S. has definitely... um, been uh, on a rampage on that front. But Europe, um, with Mrs. Merkel also, not just uh, in the UK, uh, what we saw today with the pound going up, but Mrs. Merkel in her more recent interviews has been quite um, interested in looking at infrastructure, looking at the clean, green economy now being sources of stimulus. Okay, but let's let's put this in perspective. Yes. Mrs. Merkel being interested in stimulus yes. from where she is starting. <laughs> on a relative basis. Is, yes, exactly. On a relative basis. And China, uh, yes. uh, you know, we Agreed. all talk about the problems in China. Agreed. I would probably trade our, their balance sheet for our balance sheet right. if I wanted to pick the best balance sheet. Okay, we're going to be back with our contributors shortly. Coming up next, Dan Jurgen, IHS Market Vice Chairman, on what the coronavirus means for oil. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The coronavirus has hit oil particularly hard, and it's not like it was doing all that well even before the epidemic. Crude has been soft because of concerns about global growth in the short term, and over the long term, no one quite knows what going green will mean for fossil fuels. But then the virus hit, and the price of crude fell below $50 a barrel at its lows, with the IEA now saying overall demand for oil will go down this quarter for the first time in a decade. In the end, it's first and foremost a human tragedy. But those in the energy industry are also trying to come to grips with how bad this will get and how long it will last. It is a human tragedy, and um, and our thoughts go to the people that are that are impacted. Um, beyond that, into the marketplace, um, I think the question, of course, on everybody's mind is just how long this will last. Um, our CFO uh, last week, I think, said that the impact could be in the region of three to five hundred thousand barrels a day. So. I think time will tell as to how this plays out. Um, first of all, it's a tragedy, and secondly, the question is duration, and that will ultimately determine the impact on, uh, on GDP worldwide and on uh, supplies. 
Here to give us his prescription for what ails the oil industry is Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS Market and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book on the subject, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power. Our contributors, Steve Ratner and Asani Bechlas are still with us. So, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. We've talked about the possible downturn from the economy overall from coronavirus, specifically with oil. What are you looking at? And particularly, we talked about V versus U versus L. What are you looking at? Well, we're already looking at a very big decline that in February, Chinese uh, oil demand is more than 20 percent lower than it was a year ago. And world oil demand is certainly going to be much lower than had been anticipated. We think it's going to be lower than uh, the growth than other people think. And I think it also continues in turn into other commodities. Our material pri- price index shows that uh, commodity prices uh, last week went down 6%. So all of this is a result of China. Just when you thought the trade deal's done, things are recovered, we're not going to decouple. Well, we now see China slowing down and a de facto decoupling with airlines cutting their air service to China. Uh, okay, so that's on the demand side. What about supply? Is OPEC Plus going to weigh in and cut more? Well, they've been going back and forth, and I think it in particular has to do with whether the Russians, the most important part of the plus is Russia and whether they want to get on board, and they've been hanging back, partly, I think, because the Russians say if you cut uh, supplies, uh, who's, it's only going to benefit the U.S., and we don't want to give more market share to the U.S., but I think the signs are that they're going to edge towards that and try and put some kind of floor under, under the price in this very uncertain situation. Uh, Hi, Dan. It's Steve. But the oil market itself, I think, uh, relative to all those uh, changes in demand that you talked about, and also on the supply side, I think the uh, neutral zone right uh, between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia is coming back online. I'm actually kind of surprised oil hasn't gone down more. It's sort of hung in there around this $50 level, even given everything you've said. Well, there's been one other factor that's been out there. You mentioned neutral zone and other supplies. Libya. Libya is almost completely shut down. And Libya has really become a war between not only between the two sides in that internal battle, but Turkey on one side uh, with Qatar and uh, Saudis, UAE and uh, Egypt on the other side. And that's shut down and that's removed almost a million barrels a day from the market. If Libya was in the market, we would certainly, as you're suggesting, see oil prices lower than they are today. Dan, is is a growth of shale trickling off here in the United States as a practical matter. I know they're having some problems with the investments. Some bills are getting due. Right. Well, I I think what's happened there is the investors have said, show me the money. We want returns. And that means that it's no longer growth at any cost. It's growth at what cost. So we think we're not going to see this one and a half, two million barrel a day extraordinary growth that we've seen for several years. This year, we would have expected about 400,000 barrels a day. Maybe with lower prices, it'll be lower than that. And basically a flattening out. The U.S. still stays the world's largest oil producer, but not with that kind of upward growth uh, that had been such a dynamic in the marketplace. So, Dan, the new BP CEO has taken a fairly aggressive position now on carbon. Is this the first of many in the oil industry? Well, I think, first of all, it is a bold step uh, in a very changing energy future. Uh, you'd had the other European majors, Shell and the smaller Spanish one, Repsol, doing it. But nobody has done it in the form, in this kind of comprehensive form. And it reflects, I think, uh, the way the world has changed. Uh, the force of the regulators, particularly the Bank of England, the attitude uh, of investors and what governments are doing. Uh, the uh, new president of the EU has said climate is the number one political issue facing Europe. Uh, 
and countries and uh, EU are aiming at uh, net zero carbon. And so what uh, Bernard Looney has really said at BP is we're going to get on board and we're going to do that. And it's going to take a lot of investment and a lot of technology to get there. Dan, uh, he also said that the price of oil could go as far down as $40, maybe, in his scenarios that he came up with. Uh, and then when we look at the actual numbers that BP is spending on renewable energy or things related to renewable energy versus their classic oil and gas business, it's a tiny fraction at about 500, 600 million versus 14 uh, billion. So how do you sort of put that well, together? Think, so, Afani, I think, first of all, just to keep oil production where it is, you're going to have to add 40 uh, billion barrels uh, over the next 25 years or so. And people are not going to throw away their automobiles right away. I mean, we have 300 million cars in the United States. So that supply is really going to be necessary. I think the issue people have, and you probably have it as an investor, there aren't a huge number of things to invest in in the renewable sector at this point. Most of the solar panels are made in China. Uh, obviously, wind is the other big thing. But people are looking at, at what else can you do? You've got to do carbon capture. Maybe you capture carbon from the air. Uh, maybe plants have a much more important role. So it's, it's not like you can just... Uh, put, you know, windmills everywhere. And by the way, most cars don't operate on electricity. You know, we have uh, uh, 1.4 billion cars in the world that operate on gasoline and they're not going to go away overnight. Well, Dan, to your point, uh, coincidentally, we met yesterday uh, with an investment firm that does upstream oil and gas or was doing it anyway. <laughs> and uh, that quite, we got to this question of renewables and they're trying to do renewables. But there are two problems. Uh, and just uh, what you said, one, there's not that much to do. You can't invest billions of dollars profitably. And secondly, we've looked ourselves at quite a number of renewable ideas over the last few years. We have yet to find one where the economics pencil out to what we would expect to get from another investment. You can do it for social reasons, but we haven't found one yet to do for financial reasons. But putting all that aside, I think the question uh, I'd like to ask you is, what, when you boil it all down, then, what do you see as the long-term outlook for oil prices? If oil goes down to $40, you're going to have drigs laid down all over the Permian Basin, which will shut supply down, put some uh, upward pressure on prices. On the other hand, you do have this, these enormous forces trying to curb demand. Whether they'll be successful or not, we'll see. So when you guys put it all together, what do you think? Well, I th at this point, our, our base case still is we see oil demand rising till the kind of mid-2030s because the world adds 2 billion people, because incomes go up, and then you get a flattening out of that. Uh, it has to come with a much more uh, carbon capture to get there. But the point that you make is that you really, technology is going to be the really big thing. We, we did a study with Ernie Moniz, the former energy secretary for Bill Gates's group, on what are the breakthrough areas that you need. And there, there are a number of them where you need big breakthroughs, whether it's in storage, whether it's in carbon capture. And those are going to have to be uh, part of the armory to uh, really uh, address the kind of climate goals. So Europe has these very aggressive goals, but they don't really know how they're going to get there. And they don't yet know how they're going to pay for it. So, Dan, if you're the CEO of BP or of Shell or of Exxon, uh, do you at some point become essentially a cash cow? 
in, in this sense, you can say I'm going to move into renewables. Let's assume at some point there are things to invest in your renewables. Why are you going to be better at that than somebody else, a tech company or somebody else? Why does what you know as an oil and gas producer translate over into windmills, well, it, into solar, well, things like that? Well, it does, it does in terms of scale. For instance, uh, if you're going to do offshore wind, if you have scales in terms of doing offshore oil, you have some to really bring to the party. And I think we'll see uh, the oil majors uh, move into offshore wind in a more significant way. But that's really a question that almost goes back to Steve. If, if you're investing, Steve, in renewables or Afsani, do you want to invest in somebody who's a specialist in that? Or do you want to invest in a general company that's, that's doing well, that? Look, the, short, the short answer is there really aren't very many people who know about renewables. It's a relatively new thing. And uh, our view would be that someone who's a good investor, who knows the energy space, and that maybe has some experience offshore of this or that, as qualified as anybody if they can uh, to figure it out. But uh, as I said, we've yet to see a project right. that meets and our return I standards. Think, yeah, I think the other thing that I see among the majors is there's a focus on technological innovation, on new technologies, on venture capital, going to what you're saying, Steve, that really never seen at this level of intensity to say you have to go down a number of paths if you want to be a player in the future. You see them in, they're in fast charging uh, of vehicles, for instance, battery research, uh, saying we want to be a player in what's going to be the future, even if the future is not yet very clear. Dan, as uh, you know better than anybody else, Shell, BP and all the large majors used to have large renewable groups within the oil companies in the 80s. And in fact, they shut them down later in the 90s. And of course, a lot of venture money was lost around 2008. But at the same time as that has been going on, there, there has been people who've been experienced in this area. And if especially you go into emerging markets, pretty much outside of China, a lot of the new energy capacity that is getting built out is um, the energy based on renewable sources. So if you go to uh, to whether it's India, whether it is uh, whether it is Bangladesh, whether it is Pakistan and uh, or well, Bolivia well, or Colombia. Uh, let me let me disagree a, a little bit. I think that's true. But if you go to India, we work closely with the with India right. and they're doing renewables. They're also very committed to really increasing natural gas use exactly. in their economy to clean up their air. And it's interesting, China half the new capacity in wind and solar every year goes into China. But by the way, China is also building three new coal-fired plants a month. So it's a kind of mixed picture. That's why I think the notion of a transition really describes something that's going to unfold over a couple of decades. Okay, Dan, thank you so very much. That's Dan Jurgen joining us from Washington. More with our contributors next. And if you missed an episode of Bloomberg Wall Street Week, full episodes are now available on YouTube, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. This is Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're going to talk with our contributors now about what caught my eye. You usually ask them, but I'm going to say what caught my eye, and that's newspapers. Steve, i got to turn to you. You were a New York Times reporter, after all. You advise newspapers. But we had several things. McClatchy declared bankruptcy. I took McClatchy public. Did you really? Long, but, but McClatchy, I mean, really an icon in the, in yeah. the publishing business. We had we have Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett sort of throwing in the towel on newspapers, saying you can't make it work. At the same time, New York Times and Wall Street Journal are shooting out the lights and subscriptions. What's going on? Well, there's a bifurcation. Uh, there's still a place for the very high end, very high quality. The Economist, which calls itself a newspaper, oddly enough, yeah. is uh, although it's a magazine, is in that same kind of category. People, as these local papers get slimmer and slimmer, worse and you know, less and less content, there are a group of people who happily will pay for the very high end product. But for the average, the average newspaper, it's going to be like passenger trains. There are going to be many, many important cities that just don't even have them. Is there anything substituting coming into that space, either on the business side or the news side? There's a, there are a number of things. There are, in many of these communities, there are small, sometimes non-profits, sometimes for-profits, digital only, you know, fairly eclectic uh, groups. But I, I would say that going back to my days as a reporter in the 1970s, the real tragedy of this is the coverage of local governments and state governments has, has really diminished, if not evaporated in many places. And you need newspapers or journalists of any kind to hold these people accountable. Yeah, I think it's undeniable. Local reporting is really going the way of the horse and buggy. At the same time, was it an aberration to begin with? Well, I think the local, local newspapers in this country have been so important. And in fact, there was a story this week, I think, of a local paper uh, where a local entrepreneur came and saved it for the reasons that Steve was just talking about. But do you see any model, Steve, in terms of local papers <laughs> doing what you're talking about? No, I, I think the days of, uh, of, of newspapers being printed on paper in these communities is pretty much over. I think there is potentially a model for local journalism of one sort or another. I think the nonprofit model, the ProPublica kind yeah. of model, may be the best hope. And I think we should all even think about the idea of some kind of public funding, the way the BBC public television are funded. I know there's a lot of political issues, all yeah. kinds of issues, but we need, we, need, uh, we need reporters. Yeah, politicians wouldn't want to have anything to say about the news. If no, I don't want them, no, I don't to say anything, but I'd like some financing. <laughs> okay. More of the contributors coming up next. And you can check out what's coming up next week on Wall Street Week by heading to Bloomberg Market's official Twitter account. We'll have a poll each week focused on what you'd like to hear from our contributors. The results for this week are in. We asked, what would a Bernie Sanders nomination for president mean for the stock market? 60.2% of bo- voters said it will send it low. We'll find out whether that's right or not. That's next. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Welcome back from New York. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, a socialist in the White House. You'd think the prospect would send Wall Street running for the hills. But Bernie Sanders won in New Hampshire this week and is ahead in the national polls. So we have a front runner for the Democratic nomination who is a self-described 
Democratic Socialist who wants to tax wealth, have the federal government take over all of health care, and would nationalize a good deal of the energy sector as part of a Green New Deal. And the market's reaction? Reaching for new highs. And our contributor, Larry Summers, has a possible explanation for a stock market bullish on a Sanders nomination. I do think that uh, a number of Bernie Sanders um, policies will be that will create uncertainty, will potentially be damaging to growth and employment. And that over time does affect uh, markets. But I also do think that Bernie Sanders nomination probably does make the reelection of Donald Trump more likely. And for that reason, I think it uh, would tend to make the market uh, go up. Still with us are our contributors, Steve Ratner and Afsana Beshla. So let's talk about it. First of all, I mean, you work with Mike Bloomberg, but you don't have a position on the campaign. I want to make that clear. I don't have a position on the campaign, but I do have a dog in the fight. <laughs> so to speak, we won't tell him that you call him a dog. But, <laughs> so, but, but give us a sense. So you heard from Larry Summers. The policies of Bernie Sanders would be bad for the markets, but maybe the markets like the possibility of a nomination because they say that makes sure Donald Trump, whom we like, will be back in office. Yeah, I, I understand Larry's point, And it's, of course, like everything Larry says, not wrong at all. And uh, but I, I think uh, he, I think he's maybe being a little too more sophisticated than the market is. Uh, I think this election is still a long way away from the market's point of view. I don't think you can see it reacting day to day to whatever happens politically in terms of who's up or who's down. I think the big driver behind the market right this minute are is the fall in interest rates, uh, long term interest rates, because of everything we've been talking about have been coming down, which makes stocks more attractive and has really been, I think, the principal propellant behind the market for quite some time now. So is that what it is? Interest rates low? I think interest rates are low. Jay Powell said that also in his testimony. Also, you have huge amounts of liquidity sitting on the side of the market, trying to get into the market. And then last but not least, I think the question is whether those same people believe that uh, that Bernie will, will win. And so if people do not really think that's credible, it may not be so impactful on the market. So how sophisticated is the market? Is there also possible they're saying, okay, even if he got the nomination, there's a limit to what he could get through as a practical matter? if he got elected? Yeah. Yeah, I think that is another exactly. level of analysis you could do, which is that uh, the probability of the Democrats taking the Senate back, which they would have to do, is probably a bit less than 50-50. To get a lot of stuff done, you need 60 votes in the Senate, which obviously neither party is almost certainly going to have. So yeah, I think part of what the market's also saying is there's a limit to what what are you? But look, the markets are not perfect. You remember that when Donald Trump got uh, elected, the market immediately went down. Then it turned around within about two hours and went up when it realized that a Trump presidency actually could be good for the market. So markets are not perfect. Well, they may not be perfect. What's, what's driven them up during President Trump's uh, term? Because we have one person for Bloomberg Opinion who wrote a thoughtful piece this week. He said, look, if you look at it closely, it's not tax cuts. It's not deregulation. It's actually deficit spending. That that really is driving the market more than anything else. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think I think it's pretty clear the tax cut. And in retrospect, I kick myself because I didn't really see this. I think it's pretty clear the tax cut had a significant one-time effect on the market. When you cut the corporate rate from 35 percent to 21 percent, earnings go up a lot. Mm -hmm. P multiples come down, and then the stocks go up to offset that. So that I think absolutely played a role. The fact that the economic recovery has remained very steady. Uh, and the consumer particularly has remained very stronger than probably most people would have guessed. And the third major factor, in my opinion, uh, is low interest rates and the fact that the what they call the equity risk premium, the difference between treasuries and, and what you get on equities, even a dividend yield on the S&P, 
makes stocks very, uh, very compelling. And as Afsani said, there's a huge amount of liquidity in the world. So, Afsani, we now have seen a budget proposal. It's not a budget, but a budget proposal from the uh, Trump administration that takes on more and more debt and spends yes. a lot more money. Frankly, more on military. It actually decouples it from the discretionary spending on right. the social side. What would that mean for the U.S. economy? What would it mean for investors? I actually think it could be negative for investors because since a lot of money being is, that is being taken off the table is in things that are related to social programs and student loans and having a population that has a bigger student loan problem or a bigger um, health bill problem, you're going to have people spend less in that kind of economy. The other side of the budget, I think, which was interesting in the on the military side, and I'm no expert on the military side, but it was... It's very much hardware-oriented. A lot of what's very interesting right now on um, R&D going into military is really using a lot of technology. And not that that would not be important, but a lot of the very large numbers that were in that uh, budget document were more traditional than modern kind of technology use in military. So, so Steve, uh, going into the next election, President Trump is going to make the case. He's making the case right now. He's been really good for the economy, good for employment. Uh, tame inflation. It's been a good economy and a growth economy. At the same time, we see um, asset valuations uh, going up much faster than wages, for example, and uh, and much of the real growth rate. What accounts for that? What's the difference? And why are asset? Yeah, valuations going up so much faster than the rest of the economy. Well, again, I think it's a factor of lower interest rates and, and the value of an asset, whether it's a piece of real estate or a stock. Real estate's the best example. Real mm-hmm. estate essentially trades at a, what we call a cap rate. It's essentially a, a, the inverse of an interest rate. When interest rates go down, the value of real estate goes up because it's so heavily dependent on financing. But I think, uh, I think income inequality is, is terrible. It's probably not gotten worse. In some ways, it's oddly enough gotten better for the people yeah. at the very bottom, and that's because of state minimum wage increases. And so Trump actually has a case to make. I don't happen to think personally that his policies have created this economic environment. And I think there are many measures by which the economy today is doing no better than it did under Obama. Well, you've written about that. I have written about that. But sometimes the fact of the matter may be different than the political fact of the matter. I totally agree with you. Even if that is true, demonstrably true, uh, to to the polity, to the people going into the voting booths, they may say, look, he's president, looks pretty good to me. I think there's two things to say about that. One is that J.P. Morgan put out a paper, you might have seen it, in which they calculated that he has the greatest economic tailwind of any incumbent since 1896. And that's using these headline numbers that people tend to look at. And secondly, if you look at the public opinion polls and whether people still think uh, the right track wrong numbers are still very negative. But if you ask people, are you better off economically than you were a year ago, two years ago, those numbers have been going up very steadily. And that's Trump's tailwind. I'm sorry, as an investor, what do you want to see? I think what uh, Steve said is really important because policy seems to take a very long time to turn Mm -hmm. into numbers. So really important to have the right kind of economic policy and not to um, not to, for example, slow down the economy at this time and not to put too much fuel in it either, because either could be very damaging for the markets. The other thing I think that uh, as investors we like to see in the, mar- in the marketplace is more certainty because mm-hmm. risk is something that you can put on probabilities and make a decision on right or wrong. But uncertainty is something that is very damaging uh, to decision making and investments. So as, as, that is very much um, around t- today. And so are you better off under President Trump? Your fund, your investments, have you done well under President Trump? I think there has been a lot of upward movement in the markets that has benefited us just like mm-hmm. everybody else. Uh, at the same time, 
I think that is coming to an end. I think mm. moving forward, uh, the next 10 years will not be as easy as the last 10 years for us or for anyone else. Okay, our contributors will be staying with us. And coming up, Skanda Amaranth from Employ America, here with a second opinion on how Chair Powell should be looking at the job market. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Fed Chair Jay Powell took us through the regular paces this week. Strong economy, strong job market, low inflation. No need at this point to rock the boat. But are he and his colleagues looking at the right things? For a second opinion, we welcome now Skanda Amaranth. He is Director of Research and Analysis at Employ America, a think tank that analyzes the labor market and economic policy. Skanda has a new way to think about our labor market and whether the Fed is getting the job done. Still with us are our contributors, Steve Ratner and Afsane Beshloss. So, Skanda, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so, tell us about GLI. Exactly what is it? What would it do? So, GLI stands for gross labor income, which you can think of as the sum of every employed person's paycheck. Um, and so, it's a different way of orienting how the Fed should think about its framework from this sort of inflation-centric framework that they are working with right now. So currently, the Fed has adopted a 2% inflation target, and they're undergoing this review of uh, of inf- where inflation, where the inflation target should be in order for them to really meet their goals going forward. We've had seven years, or eight, eight years actually now, on, under the 2% inflation target regime, and the Fed has missed on that target. And so the Fed is trying to revise its methods in part because they're running out of ammunition, right? So the question is, how do they actually get some of that ammunition back? So is the essence of it, it's not so much how much people pay for things, it's how much they get paid how much people get paid, right? So jobs and wages, right? The, the accumulation of those two facts and what and the Fed really calibrating its policies more towards jobs and wages, because when we think about the inflation target, it's the kind of thing that's hard to really argue for from below. Do we really want to see higher inflation, or what we're really talking about is higher wage growth and more plentiful job growth? That's the real dilemma I think the Fed has right now. Uh, I think I understand that, and that all seems very plausible to me. But I guess the question then is, uh, at the end of the day, when you, if you were to go your way, what are the actual implications for Fed policy relative to what they're doing now? What, would they, what, what do you think the interest rate should be? What do you think they should be doing? I, I think for right now, especially if you look at the trends in job growth and wage growth, wage growth is disappointed, I'd say, more recently, but job growth has picked up, again, um, especially on a couple different surveys. So standing pat, as Joe Powell is doing right now, is actually something that's pretty defensible. We're seeing not really the inflation that's a sign of a hot economy, but at the same time, we are seeing robust growth. I think what really stands out is when we see the Fed, especially during this expansion, repeatedly they tried to lift off rates, exit accommodative policy, only to do a 180 in six months' time. You saw this in 2010, 11, 12, 13. Um, so the real thing, uh, value, hopefully, to this framework is to not hit the brake so aggressively and to be a little bit more patient. Jay Powell, to his credit, has really taken that on board to some extent. Uh, your research seems to show also that um, inflation is a lagging indicator versus mm-hmm. wages. Yes. Um, how do you look at that? Um, in, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So inflation itself oftentimes is a red herring in mm-hmm. the pivotal moments of business cycles. So if you think about 2008, when inflation was actually quite strong in the middle of 2008, and there was a lot of concern that the Fed was going to have to hike rates. By the end of 2008, I think there's something like three hikes priced. We obviously went to zero by the end of the, end of the year. Um, 
in 2011, we saw something similar again, where inflation sort of sends the market in one direction, even though actually the underlying economy is moving in another. And then it gets reflected in inflation to some extent, but it's really with a 12 to 18 month lag. Uh, wage growth does have a little bit of a lag too, but not to the same extent. And I would also argue that when you couple it with job growth, job growth is actually more coincident to the economy than, say, inflation. Everything is sort of has its certain lags and uh, pitfalls, but I would say calibrating policy to where the trends in job growth and wage growth, what that's telling us, will give us a better guide to the downside risks of the economy, which is what we've really been grappling with for the last 30 years. Skanda, one problem some people have had with the inflation target is the monetary policy wouldn't get you there. They've tried to get it up to 2%, they haven't been able to do it. Are they going to be any more able to get to a GLI target? I mean, is it a better tool to get to that than to get to inflation? Necessary, but probably not sufficient in all circumstances. I think that's fair, which is that monetary policy has a valuable role to play in sort of not hitting the brake too quickly, especially coming out of recessions. But fiscal policy also has to do its part in sort of fostering the kind of economic growth and income growth. Because if we really talk about inflation, inflation ultimately is sort of a reflection of a sort of higher nominal income growth economy. That's the sort of circumstance of the 70s when we did see inflation show up. But right now, we've been a really nominal income growth has been constrained for quite some time. And fiscal policy has more of a role in supporting that process, especially around recessions. And they're going to have to, we're going to have to see um, sort of Congress and the president step up to the plate whenever that time comes. Okay, but as we sit here today, the budget deficit's at a trillion dollars. Sure. Uh, at, yes, you know, in the 11th year of a recovery. It's yes. not what we all learned in economics one. So what do you think should be different about fiscal policy right at this minute? I think the quality of the deficit is really the thing that's most problematic in terms of, if we look at what happened with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we saw the one-time um, sort of change in the corporate rate, we saw the, the widening out of deficits, but it didn't actually move the needle on demand in a meaningful way. So we didn't really see the growth acceleration and demand really sustain itself over a period of time. And we didn't really see the um, change in inflation either, to be honest. Right? So we actually, government borrowing costs, which really price signals also matter, um, are historically low. Right? And if we look at even other countries that have sort of higher deficits and higher debt burdens, Japan being the sort of vilified example of this, um, also has actually lower borrowing costs, too. Now, that's, I think that tells you the bigger economic structure and the problem of generating sustained income growth is at play. And so I don't, I'd say I'd have, I take more issue with the quality of deficits. The actual quantity really depends on how much demand generation you're getting for each deficit dollar. So if you didn't get demand uh, from tax cuts, what would give you demand growth? Because, I mean, putting more people money in people's pockets, you'd think would have them spend more. Yeah, I think part of that is where it's skewed to, right? So if we look at the flow of funds accounts from the Fed, they seem to show that it's really been a surge in corporate saving rates that's happened. Um, and at the same time, you've seen that um, really not as much has flowed to the yeah. lower end. Also, at the lower end, if people are getting just the minimum wage, you might be seeing the employment numbers going up in your measure, right? But the actual total income is not going up by that much. So you can't actually spend. That, that is exactly right, which is that especially when we think about what kinds of jobs, also mm -hmm. the quality of job growth, something that's harder to parse from the NFP headline net numbers from non-farm payrolls. But um, it's really, if we think about a dollar-weighted um, average, this is not the kind of thing that the lower income is going to necessarily push the aggregate to the same extent. Um, and even if you think about it right now, we've seen actually a lot of the sort of higher-paying blue-collar jobs. The, the job growth there has actually slowed down quite a bit, especially in manufacturing, um, which has stagnated. Uh, whereas we're seeing still decent growth in sort of food services, some growth in uh, healthcare job growth, but it's not the same sort of quality job growth in terms of 
sort of pushing the aggregate forward. Does that all argue for the possibility that President Trump might be right about a so-called middle class tax cut? That if he did a tax cut that was more targeted to lower income, it would be more demand generating? I think dollar for dollar, yes. Right. So if you think about the dollar, the dollar amount of tax cuts for middle income, and if you sort of compared that to what TCGAA was, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, you would have seen more demand generation. These are people who are liquidity constrained in a lot of ways, who do tend to spend a little more paycheck to paycheck. And so I think that does move the needle, at least in that sense. Well, you know, the president called the TCGA a middle-class tax cut, but uh, as was just pointed out, it wasn't. So when he calls for one now, who knows what he actually means. (laughs) Fair point. My point. And uh, Tom Steyer was talking about wage levels being, minimum wage being 22 versus 15. Uh, does that help your index? <laughs> I need to know more details about uh, Tom Steyer's idea and how he's indexing that, but, but um, I'm going to refrain. But Steve, what do you think about that? Because you said earlier that part of the reason that we're actually seeing uh, an over-indexing in the lower income levels is because of minimum wage laws across the country and states. Yeah. So should we keep going with that? Well, you can track it, literally. You can go state by state and see the states that raise their minimum wage. People at the bottom are doing better. Um, so we should certainly should, should keep going for a while. At some point, there is obviously a trade-off between jobs uh, that get lost. You know, Alan Kruger, who sadly passed away, did some very seminal research in this and concluded that up to some point, I don't know if there was a specific point, it does create more wages at the lower end, but there is a point beyond which people put in machines or otherwise move the labor somewhere else. And that has been the interesting thing, because so far... Employment is going up and wages are going up. So a lot of the companies that were screaming about yes. increasing minimum wage have actually been employing more people. So. Well, uh, let's try a different idea, because I've heard some people say that uh, minimum wage actually is a tax on employers, that you're better off with an earned income tax credit expansion, because that distributes across the entire uh, taxpaying public. Is that a way to generate demand? I think both probably have a similar demand effect. I do think there's probably a sort of who eats the cost of um, sort of higher m- minimum wage uh, laws. And to some extent, even the cost, though, is also offset by the fact that if low in- lower income people are also spending more at restaurants, mm-hmm. it starts to create more velocity. So I think that's, as sort of Steve pointed out, is um, it's not as clear as some of the Econ 101 taught us about <laughs> minimum wage laws. Go- government always prefers policies that have, where the costs are hidden and paid by somebody other than in their, through their own budget. And uh, so I think... Uh, so politically... And earned political, income well, I, look, there's a lot of political support for raising the earned income <clears throat> tax credit. I think people on both sides of the aisle agree it is one of the most effective mm-hmm. uh, income-addressing uh, uh, policies we have. But again, there's a point at which they'd rather have it done through regulations that pass the cost down to the private sector. Okay. Skanda Amaranth, thanks so much for being here. He's Thank Director you. of Research and Analysis at Employ America. Head to Bloomberg.com for more exclusive thoughts from our weekly contributors, along with full episodes and the official Bloomberg Wall Street Week podcast. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Welcome back to Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It's time now for some closing thoughts from our contributors. We thought today we'd talk about green initiatives and maybe some unintended consequences of some of them. Asana, you mentioned one about biomass particularly. Yes, because we've been hearing about a trillion trees getting planted, and I think everyone is very excited about that. The other side of the equation that we haven't been thinking about is the number of trees that get taken out to feed biomass power. And what is interesting about biomass is that it gets bundled together with all other renewables, the, you know, what we talked about in terms of solar, wind, and others that are truly 
uh, renewable, but it involves taking down trees, large trees. Of course, you know, it does take advantage of some other parts of trees, but you're taking out trees that you would have to replant, and it will take 30 years. And worse than that, you are putting in a lot of CO2 into the air. In mm. fact, it can be, from a combustion point of view, worse than natural gas. So, Steve, as we know, some of the best-intentioned efforts sometimes have unintended consequences. And even the trillion trees, which sounds like a good idea, President Trump talked about it at Davos. I talked to somebody today and said, well, it depends on where you plant them. Mm-hmm. Because if you plant them somewhere that otherwise would have been white, like with snow and ice, it actually increases the temperature right. of the planet, doesn't reduce it. But as an investor, how do you sort out, if you can, what are things that sound good on paper that actually don't do anything good for the environment, as opposed to those that actually may make a difference? Well, first, we're an investor, so we don't try to sort that out. We try to figure out how we can earn a high rate of return. (laughs) We have colleagues at Bloomberg Philanthropies whose job it is to give away all the money we hopefully make, and they have a hard job of sorting out what can actually make a difference. Look, they're complicated calculations because you have primary, secondary, tertiary, whatever comes after that, effects of all these policies that you have to work all the way back and figure out which ones are actually net-net reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and which ones aren't. But, Sonny, are you seeing out there in the investment community an increased desire to really invest in green companies or greener companies, not because it's the right thing to do, because they think in the longer term the returns will be better? I think absolutely. Um, People are looking at it as long-term value creation and risk mitigation, both. So you've seen particularly insurance companies that are implicitly looking at the uh, at the cost of co2 not because they believe or don't believe but they're seeing that it's going to impact their business you're seeing a lot of you know what we just uh, talked about uh, bp looking at it in terms of future business may not be just oil and gas they do have to diversify to be around and investors are looking at companies much more carefully in terms of their value chain and how they are looking at the use of energy so steve are you seeing in the investment community because we have the larry finks of this world really being very bold and saying they're really going to curtail their investments direct their investments remonstrate with companies that don't comply with what they want is that real or or is it something we in the media like to talk about a lot let's be frank i think we have to wait and see Uh, larry uh, has been even more outspoken this year than he was in previous years and we'll see what they end up doing. I think you do have to be careful. We, we do need uh, other kinds of energy as bridge fuels. We do need companies to achieve high rates of profitability, not just comply with all kinds of ESG sorts of things. Uh, I am closer to Milton Friedman than further away from him on the issue of what companies' jo- roles and responsibilities are in society. I, we have the best companies in the world, I believe in terms of their efficiency, their management quality, their focus, uh, their allocation of capital. And quite frankly, I would not want to see us become like companies in some other parts of the world, in Europe, for example, where they get into all these different agendas and they end up not producing as much value as we want them to. So what's your agenda at Rock Creek? Our agenda is to create value. And I think we are now at the point in time where investment in things related to climate actually will be very high return. I hope you're right, but I haven't been convinced just yet. But he's looking for investments. If you have some investments in the area, he's open. He's open open for business. We'll come visit. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, many thanks now to our contributors, Asani Beschloss and Steve Ratner. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.